It's a joy and a privilege for me to be able to introduce our guest speaker this morning. His name is Phil Moser, and uh, he has his uh, lovely bride, Kim, with him today. And uh, we're so glad that they could um, be here uh, with us this weekend uh, to minister the word to us. And I trust that you ladies enjoyed your time with Kim, and I know we've, uh, as men, enjoyed our time with Phil. Uh, Phil is one of the most uh, humble, gracious, godly men that I've ever met. And our, our, our paths first crossed at uh, a little Bible college up in upper New, York, upper New York State called Word of Life Bible Institute. And uh, I was uh, essentially a freshman uh, in college, and he had already graduated from college, so he was just a few years older, a few years ahead of me in life and, and uh, ministry, and, and, um, and uh, I immediately uh, respected him, and uh, he really served as a mentor to me. Uh, as uh, he really was uh, the chaplain there for a while uh, at the school and uh, really did a good job teaching and uh, discipling the, the younger uh, students there. And, uh, but there was one thing I didn't like about him, and that was whenever I played basketball with him, because uh, for those of you guys that know and appreciate Steph Curry and uh, how he's make, made three points, uh, three-point shooting legendary, right? Phil was making three-point shots before there was even a three-point line on a, on a, uh, uh, painted on a basketball court. And so he was untouchable, man. He'd just come down and he'd just take the shot and it would go in and be like, dude, I can't even defend you, man. And so we didn't like each other because of that. But other than that, I liked the guy. Um, but anyway, uh, our, our, uh, we went our separate ways and then we bumped back into each other at the Master Seminary in California. And uh, by that time, we were both married, and uh, we would find ourselves uh, talking on the patio in between services and just getting to know one another again and uh, catching up. And um, I think by the time uh, our time in seminary was over, we both regretted that we didn't have more time uh, together uh, as uh, as couples to get to know one another. But the Lord directed uh, Phil and and Kim back to the East Coast and... uh, uh, they've been serving at um, uh, Fellowship uh, Bible Church in Sewell, New Jersey for over 20 years now, and, um, and uh, the Lord brought us here to Texas, where we've been here close to 20 years now, and um, we've tried to stay in touch from time to time uh, over the years, and so um, I'm just so thrilled that Phil was able to come out uh, this weekend to minister to our men, and I told him, I said, man, we definitely want you to stay through Sunday, because I want our whole church to have the privilege of getting to know you and being ministered to by you. And I think you guys will really enjoy and appreciate uh, Phil's very practical, uh, down-to-earth teaching uh, of God's Word. And he has a passion uh, for preaching, but he also has a pra- uh, passion for making preaching practical, uh, which we all need. Um, and so why don't we give uh, Phil a warm lakeside welcome as he comes to teach us. Well, thank you. It's a delight to be with you and uh, to minister the word to you. Um, I don't remember not liking you, Ken, when I was scoring over you, uh, but uh, maybe you didn't like me at that stage. I don't know. Um, I leaned over to Kim and said, man, when he says, I was scoring three-pointers before three point, the three-point line existed, I said, Kim, I am that old. Like, you know, like, that's just unbelievable. Um, it is a delight to be with you. You guys have a blessing in your pastor. I know you know that already, but uh, 
It's great when uh, I see what Ken and Kelly have been doing here for all these years. So uh, grateful for your faithfulness here, Ken, that's for sure. There are also some resources at the back. I'll just talk about those briefly before we open the word up. Um, a number of years ago, I was at a counseling conference and the gentleman said something like, if I have been able to um, get someone established when I'm counseling them in daily Bible reading, scripture, memory, and prayer, then I have helped them far more than just over their issue. And I remember thinking when he said that, why don't people write books like that? And so um, the resources I've developed talk the first 50 pages about the issue, whether that's anxiety, procrastination, self-pity, um, sexual temptation. Um, and then the last 30 pages are meant to get you in the word for yourself. So you'll find there 28-day Bible reading schedule, key scripture memory verses to look at in that particular subject so that you might become established in that process. So I'd encourage you to check those out at the back um, after the service. Okay, this disclaimer on my message this morning. Ken did not know what I was going to preach about, okay? So I know, and I did not, I don't know any issues that are going on in your church when I introduce the message, okay? So when I say we're going to talk about conflict in the church, I have no knowledge, and Ken didn't, I didn't ask Ken's permission, but two weeks ago, I taught this message in our church, and I became convinced how valuable it is for churches to establish whether or not there's conflict in your church, there probably will be at one day. And if there has been in the past and you're in a unified status now, then it's great to reiterate how you stay unified. You with me in that? Okay. My first introduction to disunity in a church took place when I was on the road speaking, and I wasn't pastoring yet. I was just filling in at churches. And I was at a church down in North Carolina, and I taught the Sunday evening service, and it was over, and they were going to have a business meeting. And uh, someone came up to me and said, Phil, it's been great to have you, but you probably don't want to stay around for this. Okay. Now, nobody tells me I don't want to stay around for something without arousing my curiosity. So I said, that, that's okay, I'll just kind of sit in the back. He said, you really don't want to be here for this. Okay. I said, well, what's happening? He said, um, we're debating whether or not we should have a church softball team or not. Okay. And, and that probably explained why there were bats in the sanctuary. Okay, I guess, uh, I don't know. But here, here was the point. I remember thinking, while I watched Christians argue about whether or not there should be a softball team, that, uh, man, Lord, I hope I'm never a part of a church like that. And for the first uh, decade or so at Fellowship Bible Church, I wasn't. But then, all of a sudden, I could no longer say we were the church that never had meetings till 2 a.m. as we wrestled with our differences. We were not a church that, that had never known anything but unity. And here's the truth, when you bring this many people together, you're gonna have some level of conflict. Someone has once said Christians are like porcupines huddling together on a cold winter evening. They huddle together for warmth, and the minute they warm up, they prick each other and they move apart. And then they get cold and they come back together, but they prick each other and they move apart. Okay. That's often how we are. It's interesting that the Bible does not have any problem at all addressing this kind of issue. And so if you take your Bibles with me, go to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to walk through that this morning. Philippians chapter 4 in three simple verses. Philippians chapter 4. Now, Paul's going to speak of a conflict, but before he gets there, just let me remind you of something. He has filled the letter of Philippians with joy. 16 times he's used the word joy or rejoice in the book. So when he speaks of the conflict, he's not at all afraid to name it, and he's not at all afraid to call the people out by name, but he also brings and sets it up with a spirit of joy. Look at this, verse 1. 
Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Let me just talk about that in really Paul's masterful way of addressing um, spiritual our disagreements. We're going to talk about it in three ways, and we'll come back to this page throughout, but I just want to give you the three ways. Here they are. When there is a conflict, bring encouragement first, understand the nature of unity, recognize the benefits of outside help, bring encouragement first, understand the nature of unity, and recognize the benefits of outside help. Now, here's the first thing. He brings encouragement first because before he ever gets to the conflict, he is talking to them, affirming his love, expressing his joy, and encouraging steadfastness. Let me show you that in the text, if I could. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, the Greek word there for love, you know, is the word agape. He's speaking of the fact that he loved them. He was willing to sacrifice for them. But the idea he longed for them is only mentioned here in the New Testament. This is fascinating because Paul had other churches. He had other churches that he addresses that never had, that he doesn't address a conflict. Then he had churches like Corinthians where he addressed a lot of conflicts, okay? In fact, two letters, his two longest letters because of the conflicts. But even though there's conflict in the Philippian church, Paul says to them, you guys are special to me. You're unique. It's not like all churches are the same. I long for you. And I've never told that to any other church, okay? I want you to see that because there is an affirmation of not only his, what we would call Christian love, but also his special love for them when he says, I long for you. I noticed something else. He says, my joy and my crown. Um, Now, granted, he's already used the word joy some 16 times, but can I just remind you for a second how it was that the church of Philippi started? Paul had traveled on his, on his third, missionary, second missionary, third missionary journey, hundreds of miles where God said, no, don't go there. Okay, but I want to preach the gospel, Lord. Okay, go a little further. No, don't go there. And he kept being told no until all of a sudden he came to, comes to a little peninsula, uh, and across the peninsula is where Philippi is. And the man from Macedonia on the other side in a vision says, come and preach the gospel to us. And so in this vision, Paul gets in a boat and he goes across. He still hasn't really preached the gospel because God's been saying no to Galatia, uh, no to Asia. And all of a sudden, he crosses over looking for the man who had said in a vision, come and preach the gospel. When he gets there, there's not a man there. There's a woman by the name of Lydia. And Paul begins to preach the gospel to the women at the river. And then he preaches a little bit more. And before long, Paul's typical way was he didn't have to worry about a hotel because he was going to spend the night in jail, okay? And so he spends the night in jail. And he's there spending the night in jail after a pretty significant beating. and And he begins to sing praises to the Lord with his hands in stocks. It's a remarkable thing that in that whole setting, um, all of a sudden, the jail doors open up. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to jail. I have been on ministry, on ministry, okay? And so I know what it's like when those doors, I just got to look for my wife and that kind of bothered me. I'm trying to remember if there was another time I was in jail, okay? Um, So those doors slam shut, you know, you just hear the boom, and then you step in, 
and then you're looking at the officer, and then there's another door that goes boom, and then you step into the hallway, and there's another door that goes boom. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if doors open up on a jail, everybody that's in the jail is coming out of the jail, except in this setting. The book of Acts tells us that all of those who were prisoners stayed in the jail, and when the jailer came in thinking everybody had left, he found them all there. Why? Because these prisoners wanted to know how you beat the living daylights out of a guy, strap him in chains, and still he sings praises to God. They wanted his freedom, okay? They didn't want freedom from the jail. So think about this for a moment. This church is started with uh, the young girl who's uh, had a demon cast out of her too in that process. You have a young girl who's had a demon cast out of her. You have men who are prisoners. You have Lydia, the wealthy woman, seller of purple, and you have a handful of other women. This is the church. Paul writes to them saying, I'm just telling you, I long for you guys, and you are my joy, and you are my crown. The word crown is a fascinating word. It's a word that actually trans is translated elsewhere as the crowns that we will one day lay at Jesus' feet. Ponder that for a second. Have you ever influenced someone and they said, man, you made a difference in my life, or you led someone by the grace of God, you led someone to Christ. You do understand that this text is telling us that people are that crown, right? That the crowns that we one day receive in heaven are crowns that we gained down here because of our investment in others. Paul is saying this to them. He's saying, listen, let me just express to you that you are a joy. You are my crown. Finally, he says, stand firm in the Lord. He, he uses a term that speaks of a, a military setting where we are to remain steadfast even under pressure. Paul says all of that to them as if to say, before we get to the conflict, let me affirm my love for you. Now, this is really interesting because you know what it's like to sometimes receive a compliment and it's quick and it's fast and, it's, um, and then, it, then there's a pause, right? And then the person says, um, but I did want to say something else as well, okay? Sometimes those statements feel a little insincere at the beginning. You can't say that at Paul's. He said, I want to tell you, I love you, I longed for you, you're my joy, you're my crown, and I want you to stand firm. And then he doesn't say, oh, but, by the way. He just says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So let's talk about that part briefly if we could. In order to understand how you're going to create unity, you're going to, have to, you're going to need to agree upon what we can disagree on, okay? So often, as Christians, we don't agree on what we disagree upon, and that's why there's the conflict. And we know that in this particular text, because one writer says, if the women could not resolve the problem themselves, they were to secure a mediator. Apparently, the dispute was not moral, and neither woman was guilty of theological heresy. How do you know that? If so, Paul would have urged the erring one to submit to the Lord in the church. This was a true disagreement, and a third party could help resolve it. Now, before we do that, let me explain something. If the issue had been moral... Paul had no problem calling out immoral people. 1 Corinthians 5, he addresses the man who is, who is committing sexual immorality with his mother-in-law. Paul's got no problem calling that out. Paul's got no problem calling out theological heresy. You may remember in Galatians chapter 2, he addresses Peter discern, uh, directly to his face, fairly aggressively, telling him, listen, you are behaving poorly when the, Gentile, when the Jews show up with the Gentiles because you're buying into their Judaism, and you don't want to do that. The gospel is free. 
Here's the picture I want you to see. If Paul had had that, um, he would have dressed it. The fact that he doesn't means that there are, probably, uh, there are probably different ways to look at the conflicts that they have. And a few, uh, about a month ago, we had someone share with us, uh, Dr. Nicholas Ellen was at a marriage conference, and he gave us four ideas where disagreements exist. And I remember when he was done with that, these work for your relationship, these work for disagreements in your marriage. Um, by the way, these work for disagreements with your kids too, okay? And these work for disagreements, but I remember thinking, man, I wish I'd have known those four words when we were experiencing our church's conflict. About a decade ago, after we worked through that, our church fractured. We lost about 200 people. Yet God was in the midst of doing something unbelievable in our fellowship. I don't know that I could have saved the disunity of the church um, with these four words, because unless you agree where you're going to disagree on these four words, you're not going to have unity. But I do know now that if I could give a church, any church, with one message, four words to explain where, what they can disagree upon, I could probably help protect that unity. So because Yodi and Sintiki had something that wasn't moral and something that wasn't heretical, I want to describe it in these four words. And I'm going to do that by giving you a basket here to represent each one. Okay? So the first one is the word preference. Let me just talk you through that one if I could. Preference is neither right nor wrong, just the way a person prefers things to be. Preference is neither right nor wrong, just the way a person prefers things to be. It's important to understand that you have preferences, my wife has preferences, we all have preferences. Um, some of you like uh, the room a little warm at night. Some of you like the warm room a little cold at night. Some of you are thinking, man, Phil, that's not just the room, that's the whole house, okay? Like, I need to go to another house sometimes when they start to adjust the thermostat. We all have preferences. Here's why we have preferences, by the way. God has created us with, just think about this, with different ways to, with what we would call um, different senses. We can see, so some of us like things a certain way that we see them. We can hear, some of us like our music this way, some of us like our music that way. We can smell, we can taste. Some of us like, uh, I mean, the crawfish the other night were great, and man, like I'm not used to, I'm used to Philly cheesesteaks, not like uh, that kind of seasoning you guys had on it, like someone gave me one, and I said, that was really good, I just need some water, like fast, all right? So we can taste, so we have different preferences there as well. Not only that, um, we can feel, so some of us like, have different preferences there. In fact, just think with me for a moment of how God created us for that. Your nose has 400 sensors. You are allowed to distinguish one trillion different odors. Okay. You have 10,000 taste buds. You can see seven million colors. You can hear 330,000 different frequencies. Now, I got news for you. With that many options in your preferences, there have got to be differences. Are you with me in that? There are gonna be differences. Some of you are gonna like something a little loud. Some of you are gonna like it a little quieter. Some of you are gonna like it a little brighter. Some of you are gonna like it a little darker. There are gonna be differences. The one thing you wanna remember in preferences is that they're neither right nor wrong. They're just the way a person prefers them to be. Paul warned us about those in, uh, in Romans chapter 12 when he says, do not be wise in your own opinion, Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 16. And notice how he sets that in the context of unity. See it? 
Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Here it comes. Do not be wise in your own opinion. In other words, don't say that your opinion is the only opinion, right? Because it's a preference. It's a preference. Take a look at this next word. We're going to call this next word wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is seeking to determine what is good, better, or best in a given situation. Wisdom is learning to determine what is good, better, or best in a given situation. You'll notice that there is not an issue of morality necessarily tied to the idea of wisdom, okay? It is what is good, better, or best. When I was teaching this service, this message to our congregation, I had the perfect illustration. Kim and I have three adult children. We have one who's, uh, who's on his way to becoming an adult. He's in eighth grade. He's the only one who's home with us presently. And so he goes early to church with me. And when we're going early to church, he said, Dad, I said, yeah. He said, I got this great idea for April Fool's Day. Okay. Now, this is an issue of wisdom. Okay. Um, and here's the truth. When men, when, as we get a little older, generally speaking, we think a little bit about what is good, better, or best because we remember some things we did that didn't really exercise wisdom, okay? So he said, um, and I have his permission to tell you this, by the way, okay? He said to me, um, there's some kids at school and at the middle school that he goes to, there's, uh, I don't know, there's like seven, there's like 700 seventh graders there, so it's a big school, okay? He said, the middle school, he said, uh, we decided that what we're going to do is we're not allowed to have our cell phones in class, so we're all going to set them to ring at 10 a.m., and we're putting them in our lockers, okay? And I can see right now all of the middle school kids think that's really funny, and all of the adults are thinking, why would you do that, okay? Okay, so we had this discussion. I'm not sure that's the best thing to do, Asa. Okay. Well, yeah, but it's really funny. There might be consequences for that at school, okay? Okay. And if there's consequences for that at school, there probably will be consequences at home, okay? See how that's working? Wisdom is good, better, best, okay? In the end, I had to say, because I was preaching this message and I was thinking about it, I had to say, it's your decision, okay? It's not your father's decision to force on you. In fact, look at how Proverbs explains this, okay? A wise son hears his father's instruction. I should have given him that verse, okay? But a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. The wisdom of the patient, prudent, is to discern its way, but the full folly of fools is deceiving. The idea is this, that the Bible does talk about wisdom, what is good, better, or best. But I will note with you, even though the Bible talks about that, that we would still say that this still becomes an area where disagreement could exist, doesn't it? Because what you think is best may not be what I think is best. You with me? This isn't a theological issue. It's not an immoral issue. It's just a wisdom issue. Let me give you your third word. Here's your third word. The third word is the word conscience. Conscience is neither right nor wrong, but believed to be so by personal conviction. Now, I got to explain that one a little bit if I could. So let me just talk with you about conscience for a second. The Bible teaches that your conscience is not necessarily, you can have a, a strong conviction about things that the Bible is unspoken about. The Bible allows for that. In fact, let me show you that in the Romans 14 passage, if I could. For there we read, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Notice, two completely different things. 
Therefore, it can't be moral or immoral because there'd be a right or a wrong. But God is saying in Romans 14, listen, some of you grew up where meat was offered to idols. And therefore, when that meat is sold and you cook that steak up, you feel that you're eating uh, a demonic kind of offering. Some of you didn't grow up in that setting. And because you've never had an association of the meat with the idols, you don't have a problem eating that meat at all. And in both situations, it's okay. What you have in Romans 14 is an issue of conscience, a personal conviction about something that the scriptures did not speak about. And notice how God has us resolve it. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? If he has an issue of conscience that isn't your issue of conscience, you're not to stand in judgment of him, and nor is he to stand in judgment of you. Why? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. By the way, your conscience can deceive you. You know that, right? When I say to people sometimes, um, you think you always have to follow your conscience because it's always going to be right? The Bible doesn't talk about it that way. The Bible says that your conscience can be weak, 1 Corinthians 8. It also says that your conscience can be seared. Okay? Now, I know what a seared conscience is like. Um, a seared conscience happens when, when there is a burning or a pressing, like you sear the burger onto the grill so that it cooks evenly, and, and the burger doesn't like that, and you know it doesn't like that because it goes like as soon as you sear it on the grill, right? Here's the picture. You and I can have a seared conscience. That's what happens when we rub up against truth without changing, okay? So you want to be careful of always saying, well, I just got to trust my conscience because it can be weak, like in Romans 14, or it can be seared. I remember Max Lucado telling the story that he, um, he uh, remembered sitting in church as a five-year-old boy with uh, hearing one of God's kindest but most boring servants preach. Okay? And so as he sat there in the, front row with the, in the front row with his father, he noticed that in the back of the pew there was a little card with a straight pin in it. His father was a mechanic, and he said, my father's hand had calluses, calluses that came from, from rubbing up against those wrenches all that time where the skin became dead to protect the rest of the flesh, a callus, right? And he said, I'm a five-year-old kid, and I'm bored in church, and I'm playing with that little straight pin, and I'm holding my dad's hand, and I look at those calluses, and I have a question, right? I wonder how deep those calluses are. So he said, I took that pin, and I begin the insertion, okay? I pushed in, and nothing happened. I pushed in a little deeper and nothing happened. So I pushed in a little deeper and my father all of a sudden said, like that and clinched and, and drove the pin a little deeper into his hand. And then he looked at me and he said, my younger brother is laughing on next to me as if he's saying, my father's hand will be used for something else later in the afternoon, okay? That's the picture, right? Lakato wonderfully says that he said, now I do the same thing. As a pastor, I am attempting to remove a callus but it's not on the hand, it's on the heart. Okay? I'm not doing it with a straight pin, I'm doing it with the Word of God. You see the picture, right? The way you overcome a seared conscience is to bring the Word of God to bear upon that conscience. The way you overcome a weak conscience is to not force them to do something, but to say, listen, before you do that, let's step back for just a moment. Let's step back and let's, let's look and study the Word of God regarding this issue. Because when you begin to see that the Word of God doesn't address the issue, then you can see that your conscience may be free to engage in something as an issue of Christian liberty. My father had a conviction, um, a pretty strong conviction about a playing cards, okay? Now, that's because before my father ever came to know the Lord, he, he had gambled a lot. 
And in his mind, that association was so connected to playing cards that we didn't have playing cards in our house. Okay. In fact, um, my dad told, would tell the story that when he was five years old, they, he was a farm, farmer family up in Minnesota. Um, he had a an older cousin who used to run with the gangs down in Chicago, and when things got hot in Prohibition days, the gangs would come up and hang out in the barns in Minnesota. Uh, on one occasion, my dad's, one of my, his first memories was going over to his aunt's home. She wasn't there, um, but the older cousin was, but he was one of the cousins who ran with the gangs down in Chicago. And my dad remembers coming to a kitchen table where he could barely see over the kitchen table, and he looked at the kitchen table, and there were guys around the table playing cards, and there were a stack of guns in the middle of the table. Right? And so years later, when he saw that particular cousin, who also came to know the Lord years later, um, at a convalescent home, he said, you know, I got this weird recollection from being five years old, that when I was at your house, because you guys were supposed to be watching me, there was the kitchen table, they were playing cards at the table, and there were guns in the middle of the table. Does that sound vaguely familiar? And his older cousin said to my dad, um, the only time we ever put guns in the middle of the table was when we played guards, cards with Al Capone. Okay. So I've always said my dad actually played cards his first time with Al Capone okay, as a five-year-old. I mean, I'm trying to even picture that now, but that's the, that's the image. Okay. Here's the thing. My dad had an association with that. That was his conviction. My wife grew up in a church where they didn't have a conviction, about, in a home where they didn't have a conviction about that. So that means that it wasn't a conviction to her, and it wasn't a conviction to me either, but it also means that now that I'm older, whenever I play cards with her family, I always lose, okay? Why? Because these are issues of conscience. And what Romans 14 says is both can be okay. They're personal convictions about something that the Bible doesn't speak about. Let me give you one last one. Here it is. It's the word um, morality. Morality. Morality are the issues that the Bible does speak about. So let me just put the Bible right here. With the men, we were talking about the fact that in the New Testament, the verb forms show up in the indicative, which is a statement of fact, something to believe, or the imperative, a command, something to do or obey. You either believe it or you don't believe it. If you don't believe it, you're, you're not walking by faith and you're believing something that isn't true. If you, if you choose to violate the command, you're disobeying. Are you with me in that? These issues are issues of morality. Um, obeying or disobeying what God has specifically commanded in his word, these are the issues that you have to agree upon. This is so important. Watch this. You have one thing that you have to agree upon to be a church that is an, an orthodox, a doctrinal church, a church that pleases Jesus, to be the kind of church that honors God. These are the things you have to agree upon. You also have to understand that in your church, you're going to have preferences, you're going to have wisdom issues, you're going to have conscience issues. These are all points of potential disagreement. Let me show you how most of us get into disagreements. Because we take an issue of conscience that's a strong conviction of ours, and we make it an issue of morality. The moment we do that, the person who doesn't have that same conviction is forced to disagree with us because we have called that an issue of morality. Maybe some of you, as parents, don't think it's wise that your kids do something and you're so convinced of that that you've made it a right or wrong issue. Not a good, better, or best, but a right or wrong issue. Okay? In some churches, depending on what you grew up in, um, you might find that they took their preferences and made them issues of right or wrong. This is how a church 
divides over whether or not they have a softball team or not. You with me in that? All those stories about we couldn't decide on the color of the carpet, we, couldn't, we didn't like the music because it was too loud or too soft, those are preferences because they come through our senses, not necessarily defined in the Word of God, and therefore, we make those right or wrong issues. In fact, as I was thinking about this, you need to maintain the four separate buckets. Because when you maintain the four separate buckets, you're saying, hmm, this disagreement is it an issue of conscience? Is it an issue of wisdom? Is it an issue of preference? Because if it is, I can honor and let my brother or sister in Christ have something different than me. These are the issues that Euodia and Syntyche must have been struggling with because they were not doctrinal, or Paul would have called it out, and they were not moral, or Paul would have called that out. So they must have been one of these. Now watch this. This is so important. For my parents' generation... Almost all issues were issues of right or wrong. Okay. The preferences were, the conscience were, the wisdom were, the wisdom was. Almost all those issues went this way. Okay. And that's going to be problematic because we're going to find points of disagreement that someone has said now have to be a point of agreement, either ethically right or wrong. That's an older generation. That's not this generation. This generation's struggle is that almost everything is an issue of preference. Are you realizing the seriousness of this? Okay. The church is meant to say it's not about preferences. We can disagree or agree upon, disagree about that. Issues of morality cannot become an issue of preference because a preference we can disagree upon, but an issue of morality, what the Bible says we should believe or what the Bible says we should do or not do is a black and white issue in the scriptures. When someone starts to use this word to describe this kind of thing, this is the process, that's a serious, serious problem. But it's also a problem when someone takes their preference and makes it a black and white issue because the church will never know unity until they start to say, Preference, wisdom, conscience, oh, word of God. Okay. It's such an important distinction to understand the nature of unity is you're going to have to agree what you can disagree on. Let me talk briefly, if I could, um, about this final thought. Recognize the benefits of outside help. Acknowledge the problem. Don't take sides. Realize much is at stake. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Now, I'm going to do something that I wasn't planning on doing. I hope it's okay, Ken. Okay? I'm going to open, if it isn't, uh, we'll just have to agree to disagree. <laughs> um, there is a place in the Bible, maybe you didn't realize this, because I've talked about something that you may not have thought about in that way before. There is a place in the Bible where it actually says, remember when the guy falls out of the window and Paul, uh, Paul was preaching through the night? The Greek word to describe how Paul was preaching is the Greek word diagomai, which means they were dialoguing, okay? So you might not be used to this, but I'm just going to take a moment and do this. I want to make sure um, there might be an insight or a question that you might have about this process, okay? So 
you can feel free to ask that question um, in just a minute because I'm almost done with the message, but I'm going to save a little bit of time at the end for, for lack of better terms, what I call a Q&A, okay? So I'll try to answer that. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to give it to Ken to solve next week, okay? So that's how we're going to do that. But, but I just kind of am warning you in that because I know what you're, if you're thinking, I'm not about to ask a question if you just tell me that. So I'm giving you a fair warning that you've got a little bit of time to think about that, okay? So you might have a question about this part of the process and unity, all right? Let me bring back, if I could. Um, let me follow up with this last one. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Let me see if I can address that real quickly. Notice that he says, you have to acknowledge there's a problem. In fact, in acknowledging the problem, he's saying that there can be help from someone else. Note this, the word dear companion or comrade is the Greek word susagos. It actually could be a man's name, a man's name who is so well known as one who can solve conflicts that he is Paul's true companion. It could be a man's name. So maybe Paul legitimately called out the man's name here too. He's saying, recognize there's benefits of outside help, susagos. Um, your name means true companion, I want you to help these women. So I just want you to see he's reaching out for help. You have to acknowledge there's a problem. Paul doesn't have a problem acknowledging there's a problem. He's not pushing it under the rug. He's not sweeping it away. He's saying, listen, these two women by name need to agree in the Lord, and they're not thinking about it right. You have to acknowledge there's a problem um, if you're going to seek help. One of the ways that you want to understand to seek help, I came upon this uh, diagram a number of years ago by Ken Sandy in the book, The Peacemaker. This is the children's version. It was a lot easier to understand than the adult version, so I chose the children's version, okay? He spoke of the fact that all of us tend to err in one of two ways when we struggle with a conflict. We tend to move towards the escape side, and you probably know who that is in your family, or we tend to move towards the attack side. We either escape, we try to pull away, ignore the problem, uh, um, we deny that there's a problem, we blame the other person, or we just flat out run away, or we move towards the attack side. We do put downs, we gossip, we fight, it gets aggressive on that side. What he said is that the middle is how we're supposed to work it out, overlook, talk, or get help. You might be surprised to know that the Bible actually says there is a place to overlook a particular offense. 1 Peter 4.8 says, um, love covers a multitude of sins. So because we're giving the benefit of the doubt to the person, we're not assuming the worst. They may have done something or said something, and we don't want to immediately assume they sinned. So we could overlook that. But if it continues as a behavior, you're probably going to have to talk about it. Maybe in the talking, you find out that you need help to talk. So in that situation, you say, okay, we need somebody else to help us work out this conflict. That's why Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins, go to him, and if he repents, forgive him. But if he doesn't, take someone else with you. You're looking for help. What's so important is that the church is supposed to work out all of those problems in the overlooked talk or get help category. But we tend to slide down those slopes either into the escape or attack side. By the way, the same thing could work in your family, right? You should be bringing a love that hopes all things, not that immediately is critical because you saw something that bothers you, but a love that hopes all things. But when you do talk it out, if you find that there's a conflict and you can't talk it out, then you would seek to get help. Notice something else. Paul doesn't take sides. I love this. He doesn't say, I entreat you, Odia, and Syntyche, too. He gives the verb to both to say, I'm on either side here. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche. I'm calling, I, 
Everything here is identical. In fact, he goes on a little later to say, who have labored side by side with me. He's referencing what appears to be a passage earlier in Philippians chapter 1, where he says, only let your manner of, of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, there it is, that unity, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See how that sounds exactly like what's going on in verse 3. It's almost like clear back then, Paul was already setting up the discussion. By the way, these women labored with me side by side in the gospel. One was not ahead of the other, one was not over the other, they were side by side. He doesn't take sides. In fact, um, the reason Paul attempts to take care of it is because he realizes much is at stake. Notice how there's a group of people working to share the gospel at the end of this passage. He says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow's workers whose names are in the book of life. This is so priceless. He doesn't boil it down and say, one saved and one isn't saved, okay? He says their names are in the book of life, but they have a disagreement. But note this too. Notice how he makes the sharing of the gospel a team event, okay? That's why there's so much at stake. There's so much at stake because if there's disunity in the team, they're not going to be able to effectively share the gospel in the way that he wants them to. Um, I love, I love watching, Ken talked about basketball a little earlier, but I love watching the game now. I don't play it as much anymore, but I love watching it. And I love team sports more than probably individual sports because I like the movement of the players, okay? If you've ever watched sports, you know this. The ball goes here, the defense moves, one guy's sitting out here in the three-point line and the ball comes back around real fast while he's open. Or we would see that in football, the movement goes this way, the whole defensive line goes that way, and the guy who's got the ball is going this way. Or they get the ball to him in open space because they remove something so that the rest of the team goes over there. I love that kind of action. I just, I, 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 I love looking at it while it's happening, right? There's something amazing about a team sport. Every single player has to do exactly what they're supposed to do or the man never gets open, okay? Or the woman never gets open. Depending on whatever's happening, the team has to move, everyone fulfilling their responsibility so that the ball can move forward. You with me in that? It doesn't matter what team sports you're playing, they all work the same. Dislocate them, move them over here, open up a spot over here, move the ball there. That's how the game's played. Paul is saying that the gospel is a team sport. It's not just about an individual preacher. It needs people praying for um, the gospel to go forth. It needs people demonstrating hospitality, showing the love of Jesus for the gospel to go forth. It needs the preacher giving the gospel for the gospel to go forth. It needs everybody participating. That's why disunity is so wrong. Because you're not just talking about a little disruption in the church. You're talking about effectively moving the fellowship away from what it's supposed to do, laboring together to get out the gospel. I am told in a military setting that those who would often fight against Americans learned not to shoot to kill, but to shoot to wound, okay? Because if they wounded, they understood something about Americans. 
that Americans didn't leave a wounded man on the field. And so all of a sudden, when you shot to wound and he's on the field, all of the efforts to defeat the enemy are now used to bring the wounded soldier back. Are you with me in that? The only way a military force moves forward is if someone hasn't been wounded and you're not moving away from what your focus is supposed to be. When there is this unity in the church, here's what happens. You get pulled away from what your focus is supposed to be. You are no longer looking at the person coming in the church, looking at them and saying, wow, they look like they were hurting today. I wonder how I could pray for them. Because you're coming to church thinking about your dish difficulty or, or your division or, or, or the thing, your preference or your conviction or your act of wisdom that you think is more important. And what Paul says here is there is so much at stake. It has to remain a team effort for the gospel to most effectively go forth. Notice that Paul does not, as some pastors do, regard matters such as this as private, to be settled outside the church, lest anyone be disturbed. No, in Paul's view, this is precisely the nature and function of the congregation, I love this, as a partnership. So there's your three ideas. When there is conflict, bring encouragement first. Number two, understand the nature of unity. We'll need to agree upon what we can disagree upon. And finally, recognize the benefits of outside help. Acknowledge the problem. Don't take sides. Realize there is much at stake. So with that in mind, before I close in prayer for you, I just want to ask if there's questions uh, that may be a little foreign to you, but I just want to talk through that, a question or a thought that comes to mind. Don't be bashful in asking. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I got it. Sure, sure. I think you have to. Um, this is where the conversation is so good because the buckets only provide for you a format to talk about them, okay? As opposed to just immediately get into the disagreement, okay? I think you have to ask yourself, because again, you know, when I went this way with most of the younger generation, suddenly everything's a preference, not an issue of morality. I think we have to make any kind of issue like that an issue of where the Word of God specifically speaks. If the Word of God doesn't specifically speak, we are still entitled to a personal conviction. Um, like, like some might say, well, well, I enjoy having my quiet time in the morning, so therefore everybody ought to have their quiet time in the morning, okay? So that may be your personal conviction, but that isn't everybody else's personal conviction, okay? So what I would say is you have to carefully think about which bucket they fall in. And we still have to encourage the younger generation in a very serious way to not make all issues just an issue of preference, okay? Um, that's a little challenging, but after I taught this, I had a guy at my church say to me, um, he said, I am getting four coffee cups and I'm labor labeling them with these words, okay? Because I consciously, I, I don't care how you do it, but you, it's helpful to say that one goes in this bucket, that one goes in this bucket. There may be points where we disagree, but I would draw the distinction between conscience and morality as what the Bible specifically speaks about and what it doesn't speak about, but that we hold to as a personal conviction, okay? That's going to be a little different. We can still say this was from the Lord for us, but it's only for us. It's not for everybody. All right?
Great question. Other questions that come to mind? Yes. Okay, if today's generation is a preference generation, what made it that way? Um, you probably have to go back to, in the earlier discussion I did with our men about sexual purity, um, I talked about the fact that that's a 200-year-old challenge. Um, Slyermarker starts to downplay the scriptures. Darwin comes along and says, listen, you're just a product of your biological functions. Freud comes along and says, because we aren't really made in the image of God, we can do whatever we want to do. I think the culture has pushed it that way. I think some churches um, die because they made everything this, okay? And therefore, um, there isn't room for these other discussions. But we absolutely cannot simply make even issues of morality an issue of preference. What made it that way is 200 years of extended European culture that grows into the societies in which we are. I think when you say, why did the church let it become that way? I think the church was too busy making everything this. And while they were doing that, a younger generation was coming along saying, that kind of seems like an issue of conscience to me, right? They make it that, but it sounds like an issue of wisdom. Or they were saying, I don't know, that just seems like a preference to me. But we have to be really careful. This is where the Word of God is at this point, that we don't contradict what the Bible specifically gives commands about. Um, great question. By the way, um, even these issues, um, we are told to speak the truth, right? In Ephesians 4.25, but we're still to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Jesus was representing, was showing us, exegeting for us, John 1.14, what, what God the Father was like because we couldn't see God the Father. He was full of what? Grace and truth. So even down here where it is an issue of right or wrong, it still needs to be done with grace, always has to be done with grace. Great question, by the way. Okay? Any other questions? Yes, right here. Oh, oh. What happens when you throw pride and selfishness in? That's another message. I'll have to let Ken develop that one, okay? Um, because you are exactly right. These just describe what the issue falls in. They don't describe how we react, right? You'd have to come back again to all of the one another's in the scripture, the 58 one another's, which means we are to give preference to one another, right? I just think it helps if we can say, um, these are the issues where we could disagree and still be brothers in Christ, okay? And this is the issue where we can, all right? Yes, in the back. Mm -hmm. So, on a very strong theological view, on a secondary issue, um, yeah, you want me to do that in 60 seconds or less, okay? <laughs> I would say um, the issue is that we could agree to disagree upon certain interpretive things, but we would always want to do it with grace and truth. And we don't want to do it walking away or attacking or fighting. I don't think the strong theological issues, frankly, that the difference in secondary theological issues has been helped at all by social media, right? In fact, that's kind of a fighting ground. 
That's not face-to-face. That's not a person talking with us about what they believe. That's not two people with their Bibles open saying, what do you see here? That's where those kind of discussions should be. We would say that theological issues still fall here, okay? Um, But there is some interpretation of some secondary ones. I probably need another bucket, I think, okay? Something like that. But I I would just encourage they should be done in grace and truth. They should not be avoided. They should not be avoided. By the way... Um, to speak to the older generation just briefly that's here. And that's, you know, I was shooting shots before there was a three-point line, so I'm in that group now, okay? Um, To speak to the older generation, we set the tone for the younger generation. If we are argumentative about everything on this table, why would our kids want to know Christ? But if we have strong personal convictions about what the Bible speaks about and we communicate those in grace and truth... We are sending them into the world with the understanding that they can think this way and not all of a sudden get to college and think everything is down here. You with me? Okay. So the older generation has a wonderful charge here to teach and instruct the younger generation in how these things work full of grace and truth. Um, Just for a moment, let me share. Any other questions? Because we're coming to the end of our time. Just for a moment, let me share. Um, Our church is 10 years removed from the fracture. To preach this message to them two weeks ago was just a rare privilege as a pastor because we are a unified church. But it was so great to say, let's make sure we keep the unity going forward by thinking this way because if we can keep the unity going forward, we can accomplish much for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. When the disunity happens and the team stops operating well together and there's disunity, we are forgetting that the presentation and the sharing and the movement forward of the gospel is at stake. That's why the church needs to remain unified. Father, we are thankful for our time together in the Word this morning. We're thankful even to um, ask good questions, Lord, of the text and of the concepts that we've talked about. I thank you for this fellowship. I thank you, Lord, for their hospitality that we have known and graciously been recipients of while we've been here. Um, I pray, Lord, that they would continue to reach into their community as a team, reaching and helping and changing um, lives as the gospel is shared and believed as people come to faith in Christ. And I pray that you extend this church and its ministry well into the future for your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One final word of encouragement for you as one pastor to another. Um, I don't know if you know, but 200 churches in America close a week, okay? Um, 200 churches close a week. You just need to do that math forward a little bit to understand the importance of your church in this community and its unity as a lighthouse and as a presentation of the gospel going out, make sure you understand what you can disagree upon and agree to disagree upon that so that the gospel can be preached going forward. Thanks, Ken. Thank you so much, Phil. And uh, just uh, we, we have been, the Lord has been reminding us in the recent months about the priority of the gospel 
and how uh, we are, it, it is a team sport, right? Witnessing is a team sport, and we all want to be involved in it. And it's just not some of us that are better at it than others. It's uh, we all work together. And so thank you for reminding us how being unified here uh, when we gather together is so vital for that going forth with the gospel. So I told you you'd like them, right? Just really down-to-earth, practical teaching. Mr. Object Lesson. That's my uh, uh, expression for Phil. Mr. Object Lesson. Well, listen, you may uh, be encouraged, challenged, uh, convicted by something you heard this morning. Uh, maybe you want to talk to somebody more about it. Obviously, you can talk to Phil. Uh, we've got a couple of our elders and pastors available uh, to serve you as well. So if you have any questions, concerns, any needs, prayer, uh, uh, desire for prayer, please come and talk to one of our elders this morning as you leave. Uh, Phil and Kim are going to be back at the back table. In fact, you might want to start heading that way before we dismiss folks. If you'd like to greet uh, Phil and Kim, uh, they'll be back at the back table. I would encourage you to consider purchasing some of his little biblical strategies booklets. Ron Brown's going to be back there uh, helping them sell those, and uh, those are tremendous, tremendous resources. It's, it's basically what you just saw here put in a little book form, uh, really down-to-earth, helpful stuff. And so, um, again, if you're visiting with us, don't forget to drop off your little welcome card there at our welcome desk, and uh, we'll look forward to meeting you in just a, a few moments. You guys have a tremendous week. You're dismissed.